Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally-based, locally-produced, locally-focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in Park Road Shopping Center, with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Abigail DeWitt, author of News of Our Loved Ones, a novel that begins in June 1944 with Allied invasion of France, leaves some family members in Normandy with only hours to live and others in Paris looking for news of their loved ones. Decades later, one of the survivors, now the wife of an American musician, returns each summer with her children, the youngest of whom becomes obsessed with stories of the war, thinking they are the key to understanding her mother, and the conflicting cultures of her life. We start first with Abigail reading her short story, Shorn, published in Narrative Magazine, which explores similar World War II deprivations and tragedies in France. Shorn, summer 1938. The only person I'd seen naked was my mother the night she died. I undressed her, washed her, her pale, dead arms, old breasts, her belly and legs and her lovely feet, and put her in her blue dress. What faced me now was a living man, all hair and veiny muscles. His penis seemed enormous to me, though in retrospect I doubt it was. I wasn't afraid. No one had told me it was going to hurt, and it didn't. I've never understood the fuss. When my mother died, I had soaked her soft white arms, rinsed them, dried them. I'd lain my head on her dead heart. I loved her more than anything in the world, the way she'd make me laugh, and all the nights together in her bed, reading aloud to each other. Hope costs nothing, she had said, quoting Colette. Remember that, Philomène. I put her in her best dress and ran away so my uncle wouldn't take me in. The man flipped me over on the bed, did his business quick and neat, left two francs on the dresser. I didn't even bleed. Two francs. I went right out and bought a baguette, 
butter, ham, and made the best sandwich I've ever eaten. This was before the war, when you could buy whatever you wanted. I can still taste it, the sweet, salty ham, the soft bread. I've tried a hundred times to replicate that sandwich. Madame Rosa slapped me when I got back, but I didn't care. What kind of an idiot was I, she asked. She wasn't giving me room and board to pocket the money and run out to the market whenever I felt like it. Had I forgotten where she'd found me? Asleep on a park bench? A little runaway? If I thought anyone else was going to give me a job, ugly as I was, I was out of my mind. It was just a closet in the back of her apartment. She wasn't a registered madam, didn't have any other girls. I thought of my uncle, with his Persian rugs, his chandeliers, his chihuahuas. He had hated my mother, made fun of her and her dreamy ways every time he visited. Philomène, he cried. What kind of a name is that to give your daughter? Do you imagine she's a heroine from one of your novels? He never apologized when his dogs pissed the floor. I chose Madame Rosa, and when the Germans came and she fled south, I took over the apartment. I might have had a different life, but anyone could say that. My uncle died on D-Day, crushed beneath his house when the Allies bombed Caen. A big, fat man, shattered or smothered, who can say exactly how it went beneath the beams and stones? There's no certainty in this world except a mother's love. Spring, 1943. I'd spent the whole morning in line for a chicken neck, but I was happy. I had three potatoes and a carrot at home, and I was thinking what a nice soup I could make with that chicken. I wasn't as desperate as everyone else. Skinny as I was, I had never had much of an appetite, and anyway, I had the occasional bit of chocolate from a John. Besides, I liked going to the butcher's. For his sake, I dressed respectably when I did the shopping, trading my stockings and lace for a flowered house dress, a pair of old brogans like an ordinary housewife. I wouldn't have bothered for any other merchant, but the butcher was so kind, handling his old chickens and horse meat as gracefully as he must have once handled veal cutlets, livers, tongues. He smiled at me as he smiled at all his customers, telling each of us in turn that he wished he had something better to offer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, the same smile, the same apology, as if it astonished him that we kept coming back. It was April, the flowering trees in bloom, a pale green veil falling across the city. Even in wartime, spring is beautiful. I heard the SS before I saw them. That's how it was with the bush. SS or Wehrmacht, in bed or on the street, it didn't matter. They filled the air with their valderie, valdera, their megaphones, their boots. They were orderly, dignified even didn't catcall, didn't smoke in the street, didn't even shop in our stores, but sweet blessed Mary the noise they made. I turned to go the long way around, but the Bosch were on every corner now, blocking off the street. Nothing to do but stand and watch. I had never seen a roundup. I couldn't breathe at first, my heart pounding as if it meant to shatter something. I didn't recognize any of the Bosch, but I was barely looking at them. It was the Jews, their yellow stars and heavy coats, that terrified me. We could do nothing for them, though they stood not an arm's length from us. 
A woman caught my eye, and suddenly I felt a small child pressed against my skirt, his forehead against my hip bone. I glanced down at his clean white shirt, and when I looked up again, I saw the woman stuff his jacket inside her bag, her gaze fixed resolutely on the truck. The air turned hot, and sweat poured down my neck and sides, but I only faltered for a moment. What whoring teaches you is how to act. I told myself the boy was my son. Come, I said, grabbing his wrist as if I had lost all patience with him, and I pulled him into an open courtyard. We'll rest in here. No one had noticed us. The scene before them had all their rapt attention. I called him Philippe. He never spoke to me. There was a fountain in the courtyard, and we sat on the edge of it until I heard the truck drive off. German echoes dissolving in the air, the sound of his mother vanishing. He didn't look at me, at the water in the fountain, at anything. His eyes glazed and still. It didn't occur to me until later that he was following instructions. Don't say a word, don't make a fuss, no matter what happens, promise me. He looked to be four or five, a skinny boy with dark eyes. It wasn't until we were alone in my apartment, the bag with the chicken neck flung on the floor, that I gave up the act, knelt down before him. It's all right now. Everything's fine. Your mother will come back for you. Would you like a bit of soup? We'll have chicken and potatoes. He began to cry without a sound, and I held him to my chest, feeling his small arms, his little shoulder blades. I had to give him to, to an orphanage after a few days. I couldn't keep him, obviously. But I can still feel him, his wild heart echoing in my ribs. Summer, 1944. They shaved my head and sent me bald into the world. I wore a wooden sign on a chain around my neck, whore, and below that, collaborator. The weight of that sign, the weightlessness of my bald head. A day so bright I could hardly see their faces unless it was the noise that blinded me. My senses were all confused. I made my way down the steps of the town hall into their hands, clods of dirt and spit. No one would have wasted rotten fruit on me. We were too hungry. A man suspected of trading Jews for rations threw a rock at me. Their anger tore through the air like fire, I want to say, but fire purifies. This was something different, slippery and choking as a plague of silverfish. I had given comfort to the enemy, but men were all the same to me, rutting between my legs until, good God, the weight of them when they had spent themselves, the exhausted flesh and bone pressing down on my heart so I could hardly breathe. I was a skinny whore, had to wait for them to push off before I could fill my lungs again. But I had chocolates now and then, a bit of money, sometimes a glass of champagne. I loved those chocolates sweet and dissolving as a morning in childhood. Honest women starved, painted seams down the backs of their calves to mimic stockings, while I sucked bonbons, slid silk up my bony thighs.
Once or twice, a man, German or French, I can't remember, brushed the hair off my face, kissed my forehead, but I was never so stupid as to imagine that I might love or be loved. In the bright August air, with the swastikas down at last and the French flags flying, my bald head burned and the voices rose and fell around me as if, suddenly, I led a great revolution. A whore can make anything look like its opposite. Now I'm a schoolgirl, now a femme fatale. So fall on me, devour me. They reached out, tearing my clothes as if they couldn't bear to suffer the slow torture of buttons, hooks, zippers. They must have me all at once. A stone in my rib cage, dark and polished like a piece of onyx, like a bite of expensive chocolate. When they were done, I turned from them, slinking down one alley and then another until I found myself alone in a small park. I would need a scarf a different city, clothes, a way to eat, a wig if I could find one. But for the moment I could sit on the ground, my back against a sun-bleached wall. I breathed slowly until I could see again. The summer sky, the shadows on the cobblestones, the world at last at peace. Abigail DeWitt is the author of three novels, Lily, W.W. Norton, Dogs, Lorimer Press, and News of Our Loved Ones, HarperCollins. Where short fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Narrative, Five Points, Witness, The Alaska Quarterly Review, The Carolina Quarterly, Draft Horse, Salamander, and elsewhere. She's been cited in the Best American Short Stories, nominated for a push cart, and has received grants and fellowships from the North Carolina Arts Council, the Tyrone Guthrie Center, the McCall Center for the Arts, and the Michener Society. The daughter of two theoretical physicists, Abigail grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and was educated at Harvard University in the Iowa Writers Workshop. Now, she lives in the South Toe Valley, an hour north of Asheville, not far from Mount Mitchell. She's taught at Appalachian State University, UNC Asheville, Boston University, and Harvard Summer School. Currently, she teaches at the Table Rock Writers Conference and the Great Smokies Writing Workshop. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and thanks for coming down the mountain. Thank you. It was yeah. fun. So you do live in the woods, right? I live deep in the woods. Can't see anyone from my house. Yeah, somewhere between here and there. Is that right? <laughs> somewhere between here and there. I have no <laughs> sense of direction. Couldn't tell you where it is. Can't tell you how to get there. Does it make it easier to write being in the woods, the solitude? Well, I have lived in cities, um, but solitude is definitely important to me. I mean, but I think you can you can create a, a solitary space Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you are. Um, like a podcast space, right? Exactly, yeah. like a yeah. podcast space. You can space. close yourself exactly. in a closet. Exactly, yeah. yes. Um, but what I love about where I live is that I can go out my front door and go on a real hike mm. just straight away, and, and that's pretty great. Now, do you use hikes like that to get ideas, to think about your writing? Or? I use hikes for everything, um, to get ideas about my writing, just to get exercise, to what I really really love is that because we're in the mountains if I hike up I get into a completely different vegetation pretty quickly Mm. and I love that kind of clearer lighter air I love mountains Um, I love that feeling of being above and being able to look out Mm -hmm. Um, I'm somebody who you know when I get to the edge of a cliff it it takes all my self-control not to 
believe that I can just fly and jump off, you know? but I don't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> don't get too close to the sun. Then. No, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, now, you, we've done a little bit about your writing and teaching in the, in the opening bio here, but tell us what a writer of literary fiction does in her non-writing time besides hiking the woods. Do you have other hobbies? Well, I read a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I am a huge Netflix addict. <laughs> <laughs> you can get some ideas on Netflix, too. Right? And actually, a lot of the writing is great. I mean, that's yeah. the thing about you know television nowadays is it has some really amazing writing. I have a daughter and a husband, and I, um, I have two stepdaughters who live a few hours away and grandkids so I do that and I also teach a lot. So how long have you been a writer and what sparked that desire? Well I have wanted to be a writer since I learned how to form letters when I was Mm. five. Your ABCs? Oh (laughs) the words I see a cat and I learned cursive in the first grade. Um, I can still and I don't write neatly now but I can practice those you know kind of cursive letters the way you're taught when you're little and write the sentence I see a cat and to this day it gives me such a thrill it's just like oh my god you can do anything (laughs) so really from the very beginning it's what I wanted to do and did in the midst of teaching I also uh, for many years wanted to act um, and did a lot of theater I'm so unable to multitask that it I had to just do one thing so I did writing but I often feel like I'm acting on the page when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I like being in different characters' voices is it feels like acting on the page, and I love that. What keeps you going back? Uh, never being satisfied, yeah. partly. Yeah. You know, I never feel like I've gotten it the way I want to get it. Um, and also, so that's one thing. I get such – the the flip side of that is that when I write a sentence that is what I want to write – the satisfaction is so intense um it gives me such pleasure and I feel the same way when I read a sentence that I love I mean I don't have to have written it but the the presence of words that feel right to me is is thrilling so I love language and I also love stories I mean that's part of the Netflix addiction is Hmm. I can't start a story and not want to finish it so if I'm reading a book I'll stay up till I'm done you know or until i my eyes are crossed and it's a, you know unfortunately it's the same way with the Netflix series <laughs> I'll just keep watching until I yeah. get to the end you have to have a certain way of thinking and talent to write literary fiction it just doesn't I don't think necessarily flow out of everybody that way but even as a literary fiction writer when you're telling a story mm-hmm. you've also got to think about the story itself do you find yourself getting bogged down in the pretty sentences <laughs> and not getting to the story or do you or do you go back and fix those sentences How do you so uh that's a great question <laughs> um i do write very slowly but i i always start out writing really fast i i almost everything starts as a free write for me you know writing as fast as i can without lifting my hand off the page without worrying about what i'm saying if i get stuck i write i'm stuck rather than Mm. let my hand stop and I write by hand I don't so you write you write I do yeah yeah yeah. and I really I'm a huge believer in some neurological connection between the unconscious part of the brain and the hand you know that if you just let your hand keep moving the story will emerge so in those early drafts I'm trying not to think about the language to me one of the miracles of free writing is that when you do 
really kind of let go and get into that sort of dream state, the language that comes out is actually better mm. than when you're trying to compose a sentence. So then the task is to look back over the free writing and identify which are the passages that, that work and which are the ones, you know, that, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's obvious if I've written I'm stuck over and over again for a page. <laughs> I know that needs to go. But the chapter will have a title of its own. I'm stuck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but usually it's a little bit subtler than that. But not, I mean, you know, surprisingly not subtle a lot of the time. Well, you've written three novels, which we'll be discussing today, but your story, Shorn, which you read at the outset of the episode here, it kind of ties in into your recent novel, News of Our Loved One. It involves the same time period, World War II France, and you have a family connection to that time period in in your novel. Talk about the connection, uh, your family's connection to that period of time, and then how you use that to write, you know, this story and also News of Our Loved One. Sure. So um, my mother was French, And she was a teenager and in her young 20s during the Nazi occupation. Her family lived on the coast of Normandy, and she was studying to be a physicist. She went on June 4th, 1944, to Paris to take an exam. And on June 6th, D-Day, her family home was in the path of the Allied bombs. Ironic, because we're going to release this episode June 4th. Right. Yeah. 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 So this was the day. Her exam was actually on the 6th, but because there were lots of bombings of the trains, she, and, and it's a short train ride normally, but she had to give herself all this extra time because there were always these major delays at that point. It wasn't really safe to be traveling, but my mother was very um, strong-willed and independent and going to do whatever she wanted. In fact, um, she ended up being a very successful and well-known physicist, but um, she wasn't originally even that interested in physics. She just wanted a travel pass during the war, and so she had to sign up for a course, and so she signed up for a physics course. How does the daughter of two physicists write write literary fiction? I think that's your answer right there. (laughs) You're not a physicist, right? (laughs) Well, actually, they were both theoretical Mm -hmm. physicists. Okay. And a theoretical physicist mostly sits at his or her desk writing. So when I was very little, I thought I was doing the same thing. And in in a lot of ways, I think I was. I mean, obviously, a a different language. I was right, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a different language. But a theoretical physicist uh, depends a lot on imagination, um, a lot on solitude, the work they do. They have no way of knowing. It's, It's not like with applied physics where they can see the results right away. In, in theoretical physics, the the benefit of the work you're doing, if it has a benefit, isn't going to be visible for many, many years. Okay. Well, we're not going to get into yeah, physics. Yeah, into that. Yeah. Right, right. But, <laughs> but so, so that was my mom's story. Yeah. Um, and, and she told you stories over the years? Yes. Yeah. So she came to the United States for physics, not um, not to marry an American. She came to the United States for physics with no intention to marry an American. When she did decide to marry an American, it was very important to her to maintain ties with France to help rebuild the sciences in France. So there's some similarities there in the character right. in, in News of Our Loved Ones. Right, except that in, in News of Our Loved Ones, the woman is having a love affair, and in mm. 
my life, my mother was going back and forth to France to run a summer physics institute that she had founded in the Alps. Yeah, but that's not nearly as interesting as a love affair, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's actually more interesting <laughs> oh, in some ways. Well, then why yeah. not write about that? <laughs> because that's a whole other story, and I really wanted this book to be about war and loss hmm. and the intergenerational impact of war. And if I went into my mother's career, um, that's its own right. thing. So anyway, so I grew up going back and forth between Chapel Hill and France, uh, which in those days, you know, early 60s through the 70s, France was still recovering from the war, you know, and America was at the peak of prosperity. So I, I grew up really with this, um, these two very different worlds. And with my mother's stories about the war um, and the impact on our family of the war. So that has, D-Day plays a role in just about everything I've written in News of Our Loved Ones. It's, you know, it's the central thing. We're going to get to that in just a second. Before we do, just a little bit about Shorn. Yeah. It's it's a troubling storyline, but it feels very real. You've got a woman who survives um, this chaos by selling her body, ends up being labeled a collaborator because she sleeps with Nazis. And yet, she saves a young Jewish boy, mm-hmm. too. Um, mm-hmm. Did you do some research to come up with this, uh, yeah. this story? You did? Yeah. So um, the the city of Caen, where my mother grew up, um, is was bombed beyond recognition. Um, so I had never been there. And when I was writing News of Our Loved Ones, I thought, you know, at least I need to go and just see what the air smells like. It's not going to look like it did when my mm-hmm. mom was there, but I need to just smell it. And they have an amazing war museum there. And so I went to the war museum, and as I'm walking around, I see these videos of these women getting their heads shaved. There's been more and more about this lately, so a lot of people know about this happening to women at the end of the war if they had slept with a German, whether they had done so, whether they'd been you know, practically raped or actually mm. been sympathizers. And I just kept watching, the, I mean, there are videos from the time, um, just watching it over and over again. And I knew I needed to write a story about a woman who had gone through that. And I also knew of a woman who had saved a little Jewish boy in just those circumstances, although she had ended up adopting him. But clearly, this prostitute wasn't going to be able to do that. So I really wanted to write this story. And I also, I think that in terms of an intellectual preoccupation of mine, the wrong people getting punished is is sort of a preoccupation of mine and people wanting to see, needing or wanting to see things in black and white terms is a preoccupation of mine so mm-hmm. you know this idea that if you slept with a german you were giving comfort to the enemy when these women were i mean they were scapegoated so often for having done something they had really no agency in mm-hmm. and oftentimes according to the reports i read the people who would actually be punishing them uh, were people who themselves had collaborated, whereas the actual resistance people were not involved in shaving the heads of women who had slept with Germans. All right, well, that's a good transition for news of our loved ones. Uh, let's let's uh, talk about the title for just a second. It's, uh, Can I just add something about this sure, story? Because I need to, because it just came out in um, mm-hmm. narrative, and okay. I just want to give them credit for, since it wasn't in the novel, um, sure, narrative published it, and I was... And I am thrilled. <laughs> so now to the novel. <laughs> okay. All right. News of Our Loved Ones, the title. Where'd mm-hmm. that come from? So uh, the title it is an interesting story. I have mentioned to you that I originally thought of this as a collection of stories, not as a novel. 
Which your publisher doesn't want you to say because people <laughs> buy novels but not collections of stories, right? Right. <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't think she minds my saying that I originally thought yeah, of originally, it that way. Originally yeah. thought yeah. of it. It was just a collection that we thought of that way, right? Right, yeah. right. And then right. we turned it into a novel. And I did write some new material so that the stories would um, connect more, more clearly. Um, but most of the pieces stand alone also. So the original collection, which included at that point Shorn, um, and Shorn was taken out because it didn't relate to any of the other characters in the novel, was called The Sex Appeal of the French and Other Stories. That really got the attention of, of agents I queried, just like they responded to me instantly. But the agent I ended up with, who is just brilliant, said to me, you know, people are going to think this is how to be sexy like a French woman. So you need to come up with a different title. Hmm. And I was so resistant because for me, the title, The Sex Appeal of the French, was an ironic title. It's a way that French people are perceived, um, French women are perceived, but you know, you see in all these different stories that that cliche of the you know, just purely sexy French woman is is a myth. So, so I was very attached to the title and very resistant. And I was afraid that somebody had suggested, well, why not call it News of Our Loved Ones? Because that was the title of one of the other stories. And I was afraid that that sounded too soft. I wanted something a little edgier. Um, but my daughter, who's, you know, in her 20s, said, no, it definitely sounds like there's a knock at the door and somebody is dead. So it doesn't. <laughs> so, so you're okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, pull, pull them in. All right. Well, well just uh, before um, you're going to read just a little bit from the first chapter here, uh, Liberation. But before you do that, a little bit about the plot uh, and the characters involved in the book. So um, – Almost every chapter is from a different character's point of view. The, basically, the collection slash novel was me trying to imagine what different members of my family experienced during the war and how they were affected by D-Day. And that included people who weren't in Caen on D-Day. It included a character who sort of stands in for me who wasn't even born back then. But all the characters very much affected by D-Day. So it's, it's really the story of a family, which is, again, why Shorn didn't belong, because that character is not a part of the family. That said, it's really a work of fiction. It's me imagining what different members of the family went through. Um, and, and I change a number of things. I mean, for example, I make the character of my mother a violinist mm. with a love affair rather than a physicist. Um, I, you know, compress characters. I isolate you know, one aspect of a character and focus just on that aspect. So I think that, you know, my relatives would say, well, no, no, that's not, that's not me, you know. It's not the way it happened. <laughs> right, yeah. right. The facts are all pretty much the way things happened, but the, the characters are invented. All right, the first chapter is Liberation. You're going to read from the end of that chapter a short piece, but set that up for just a moment. Okay, so this chapter, it's one of the few chapters that's in the third person. Most of them are in the first person. And this chapter is from the point of view of um, a character named Yvonne, who uh, is based on one of my mother's sisters. And she was 16 on D-Day, and she had 
gotten in a lot of trouble for um, corresponding with a boy. Her her stepfather had actually um, found out that she was corresponding with this boy and um, slapped her in public. Um, and she was the kind of, um, she was the middle daughter, the beautiful, rebellious one. Um, and growing up, all the stories I heard about her made me sort of idolize her. And she has a tragic end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She was always apparently uh, joking about how they were going to die any minute. This is the end of her chapter. Oh, and I I should add also that um, by the time D-Day happened, there had been so many bombing raids in nearby places, and there had been so many air raid sirens that nobody paid attention to them anymore. Half the time, they didn't even wake up if there was a nighttime air raid. In the night, hearing bombs and sure they wouldn't live till morning, Yvonne crawled into her mother's bed. What is it? Mama asked sleepily. I was afraid. Yvonne? Mama asked, waking fully. I thought you were Françoise. What are you doing here? A bad dream. Shh, said Mama. You're too big. But she put her arm around Yvonne and Yvonne curled into her soft, faintly sour body. The next day dawned more beautifully than the last. The clouds, all violet and gray, were blowing off. And Yvonne, hastily dressing in the room she loved so much, saw no reason why they should die that day, or why the boy with the red hair, belatedly learning that the convent had sent all its pupils home, should not come by after all. She went down to her bowl of chicory and gaily refused to brush her teeth after. Because, she laughed, the joke never grew old. They might be dead by nightfall. Mama sighed. There was an awful lot of work to be done. The windows hadn't been washed in a month and there was a rabbit to kill. Yvonne stood on her balcony after lunch, staring down at the end of the street. And though she imagined a hundred reasons why he might not show up, Why should he have learned that the convent had sent the girls home? Her arms trembled at her sides, and she felt as if she would be sick. The clock struck 1.30, and though he had never come that early, not once, the sound of the planes overhead became confused in her mind with the whisper of his bicycle tires, so that it was only as her clothes burst into flames that she gave up hoping it was he. So Abigail, was your family, uh, was it the victim of a bombing? Did it yes, happen? Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. And so, yeah. So, so someone did die in that? Several people died, yeah. Okay. yeah. And um, my, my mother's stepfather, my step-grandfather, who lived into old age, happened to be in the garden. So he was not killed, but he dug the bodies out of the rubble. And um, there was you know, a long period where all communication was down, Um, My mother was in Paris along with a couple of her older brothers and aunt, um, and the the people in Paris had no idea what was going on back home. um, They were trying to, you know, send letters through the Red Cross. It took several weeks for them to find out what had happened. All right. When we come back, we're going to have more from News of Our Loved Ones. We're also going to have our author-to-author segment and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Abigail's first two books. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Ann Stalski, Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Ann, welcome. Thanks, Landis. Yeah, so, Ann, one of the things the library is doing, which I'm excited about, is you're launching 
a digital library that's going to feature podcasts. Right? We, are, we are. And in yeah. fact, we're going to be featuring the Charlotte Readers how, podcast. How about that? I asked that question <laughs> just right, didn't I? Yeah. It was great. And yeah, yeah. We're, we're really excited about that. We yeah. think it's a perfect opportunity uh, to bring readers and the listeners together. And having uh, it hosted with the library's digital branch seems just like the best place to do that to help get the word out about the writers in our community. Yeah, that's also in addition to going to Apple and strawberriespodcast.com. They can go to the library's digital branch as soon as you get it up and running, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's going to be soon, right? Yeah. It is. Um, we're currently working on uh, a link. And so you can go to cmlibrary.org, mm-hmm. uh, do a search for Charlotte Reader's Podcast, and we'll direct you the link to the digital branch. That's awesome. I, I can't not wait to go find Charlotte Reader's Podcast at the library. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> All right. So, Ann, one, one final thing. If we're trying to find information on the library, where's the best place to go? You can find all you need to know about the Charlotte Mecklenburg Library at cmlibrary.org. And y'all are on social media too, right? We are. Uh, very, do you do all that stuff? I mean, we do. Our team yeah. um, is really active that we promote through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, LinkedIn. So you can find us on all the social media platforms, uh, mostly cmlibrary.org. If I knew how to use all those, I could find you there, right? <laughs> we can teach you how at the library. All right, all right great. Thanks. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. We're back with Abigail DeWitt, author of News of Our Loved Ones. Abigail, there's a character in the book, uh, a young girl, the daughter of the woman who ended up marrying a American violinist, right? Yeah. Right. Her name's Polly. Yeah. Correct. Tell us about her before, and then you're going to read a, a chapter that's in her voice. So Polly is not me, but she shares a lot of of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> she's my stand-in. Um, she's born in North Carolina in 1960, and um, she grows up going back and forth between France and the United States, like I did, and like me, she is haunted by her mother's stories about the war. This this chapter called The Jew and the German is not about her, but she is the one telling this particular family story. She's trying to tell this family story, and she's thinking about how her family members might not appreciate the way she's telling it. Okay, well, read, read the opening part of that story. The Jew and the German. Let's pretend you're the Jew and I'm the German. There has to be one of each. My great uncle and the SS officer who arrested him. I've written this story dozens of ways, hundreds, always trying to imagine myself as my great uncle. In photographs, he's on the verge of laughter, a moon-faced man with bright blue eyes, the kindest of men, everyone agreed. After I've written the story, I picture my aunts setting fire to it. You understand nothing, they say, nothing. You weren't there, Polly. You can't imagine. And your Nazi, a cartoon, he insults us all as if we would have been afraid of such a man. The war had been over for 15 years when I was born. But still, the sound of German unsettles me. In the metro, in a cafe, Tall, blonde Germans my own age, laughing. I imagine them turning around, mid-laugh, and shooting me, though I know it's wrong to suppose they're all bad. 
to imagine that I am wholly good. We are all everything. So I'll be the German this time, and you'll have to be the Jew. Abigail, was it difficult uh, to write a story like this that uh, not only had a family connection, but there's there's so much pain and loss? Uh, this story was a really hard story to write. There was a Jewish side of my family, and many of those people died in Auschwitz. And as I said, you know, I mean, the what the narrator in this story says is true of me, that I tried to write that story a million different ways. I ended up feeling like at this point in history, if you're going to write about the Holocaust, because so many stories have been written about the Holocaust, at this point, in, especially in America's history, it's only meaningful if you are willing to look at your own, I want to say the Nazi within, but what I mean, you know, but, but your own capacity for evil, that, that simply to report what happened is no longer necessary in a sense because it has been reported. I mean, there are people who deny it, but there are mm-hmm. extensive, compelling, firsthand reports, you know, and so that I can't do a first-hand report, but I think what is important, as I said, especially for Americans right now, is to look at our own capacity for evil. And so, you know, I, ha- I, I did this thing where I wrote half the story as you, you know, a, a Jewish character who is you, but I made myself the, the German character. And it was uh, during the writing of that, um, I found myself doing things that I would never normally do, um, being a much more aggressive driver, for one, um, being really impatient with a customer service person in a way that I really felt awful about afterwards. And I, you know, I started to feel like this, I mean, obviously those things don't rise to the level of Nazi crimes, but, but I, it's like I felt this, this arrogance and aggression mm. um, running through my veins so that so that was it was a definitely the hardest story to write let's get into the uh, head of Polly a little bit more with the uh, you mentioned the sex appeal of the French uh, I think the first paragraph of that uh, story might be a good switch a good, a good indicator <laughs> good give us a chance to breathe here a little bit yes. <laughs> yeah so let's so. let's let's read that paragraph all right um this is a very different story from from all of the others, um, yeah, I think it, it it the opening doesn't really need a setup, but it is in the voice of Polly, and she is visiting her aunts in France. I told my aunts I was training for an expedition in the Himalayas. I was sixteen. I smoked half a pack of cigarettes a night, and I had convinced Miss Deaton, the PE teacher back home, that I had my period three weeks out of four, so I wouldn't have to play sports. The ants believed me. Even Miss Deaton, who didn't want to bother with reluctant players, had required some finessing. A week of headaches, nine-day periods, five days for my iron levels to go back to normal. Plus, I was salutatorian, which made Miss Deaton more susceptible to my lies. But the ants were my French ants, and I'm half American. They thought I could barely spell my name, but they believed me about the Himalayas. A skinny 16-year-old with no muscle tone on her way to Kathmandu. 
So Polly, at some point in this story, says that uh, she must have sensed that Paris would break her heart, that three months alone with her mother in her own world would be too much. Mm -hmm. So she was carrying this burden around through another generation. I mean, she was feeling feeling it through her mother. Very much. Yeah, Yeah, very much. I mean, on the one hand, she's, you know, being kind of just a teenager. Sure, that part you just read. Smoking cigarettes and (laughs) lying and, you know, but on the other hand, she's thinking nonstop about her mother's pain. And speaking of the mother's pain, that's a good transition to a chapter here um, toward the end of the book where we get get an insight into the mother on page 200. So, yeah, so as you said, this is from the the mother's point of view. the one who escaped D-Day by being in Paris when everything happened. Um, And here she is in her 80s, looking back. It never occurred to me that marrying an American meant I would have American children. But nothing comes into focus when you're young. You rush forward through life, and it's all so noisy, the war and the end of the war, the world in ruins and the American soldier taking your arm in the back of the church where they are playing a Mendelssohn string quartet, the F minor. The soldier tells you in English how pretty you are. Can he take you dancing? Nearly everyone is dead, so why not? Dance with him. Let him slip your dress off your shoulders and enter you. He had no idea I was a virgin, and though it didn't hurt, I wept, so grateful for his body his clean, living body in my arms. I wanted him to come back inside me over and over and over again. I wanted to stay in that bed with him forever, and he laughed finally. You French, it sure is true what they say about you, isn't it? I hated him then, of course, but what could I do? Hate him or love him, I could not tear myself away from his living, pulsing, clean body. And then suddenly, I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, with four children and an enormous refrigerator full of pasteurized cheese and iceberg lettuce. For myself, a valium, valium, the same word in French and English, such lovely syllables like water or a bell, a valley, valley. Okay, so right there you're setting up the... uh the, the contrast in her life between living in Raleigh, North Carolina, right. and this previous life that was so much different. Right, so yeah. different and, and in which she had lost so many people. Right. Uh, and you don't run away from the sex scenes in the book either, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just like to say on my own, in my own defense, well, you don't this, have to, it's not a, you don't have to this is it. the less, <laughs> least explicit of my books. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> Maybe that's not my, my defense. Maybe it's an advertisement yeah. for the other two books. But okay. right. yeah, my other two books have a lot more sex in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll have people running out to buy all three now. <laughs> okay, well, before we get to those other two books, we do have time to talk briefly about those. Um, we're going to do our author-to-author segment, which is something I'm doing here uh, in season three, where I have an author from a previous season throw a few questions out uh, for you to answer. Th- these are from Gary Powell. Gary, uh, his recent book is Getting Even and Other Stories. Um, his first novel was Lucky Bastard published by Main Street uh, Rag Publishing. Here are some of his questions. Abigail, how do you feel about revision? <laughs> I, well, everything is revision. Yeah, um, yeah I, I go through hundreds of drafts. 
takes me, you know. Um, now, literally hundreds. Of literally minutes. hundreds of drafts. I mean, I don't count. I do everything by hand. I use a lot of paper. Um, I try to make up for that by reducing my footprint in other ways. But I do use a lot of paper, um, and I don't throw anything away till it's till it's all done. And even then, I'm reluctant to throw things away. I think I still have you know, drafts from 20 years ago of something. These are all handwritten drafts? Well, mm-hmm. after, at a certain point I start typing and then I handwrite some more and then, you know, I go back and forth. The, okay. um, But, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I'd love to have it all come out just right the first time, but realistically, it you know, 99% of it is revision. So if you don't love revision, it's hard to be a writer. <laughs> Okay, another question from Gary. Who supports your writing, and how do they do that? Well, I am really blessed. Um, My family of origin, uh, which was a complicated family in a lot of ways, but um, to a person, they are very supportive of my writing. My mother was hugely supportive of my writing when she was alive. I was perfectly happy for me to take her story and completely change it around for my own purposes. My husband is intensely supportive of my writing. My daughter is supportive of my writing. My Great. stepdaughters are. I mean, really, uh, you know, I have a lot of writing friends who have not had that. Um, but I feel I feel incredibly blessed. And I also, you know, want to make a plug for the state of North Carolina. This is the community of writers in North Carolina is the most supportive community of writers I've ever been a part of. Um, yeah, the North Carolina Writers Network says it's one of the writing estates. Yeah, is right? yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, you know, it's not a competitive community of writers. It doesn't have a big star system. People really try to help each other out. Um, but it's okay to be jealous, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think everybody goes through that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just life, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There, there's a, I have met, and j- just through this podcast here, so many authors in this community alone um, and in the greater Charlotte area and then from around North Carolina who are supporting each other and yeah. on social media and in book signings yeah. and yeah. everywhere. Yeah, and, yeah. And difference. I really, really feel that. Um, I, You know, I have... Uh, Judy Goldman is uh, a great friend of mine. I know she was yeah, on your she show. She was on She's the first season. Yep. A huge supporter of my writing. The um, Georgianne Eubanks, who runs the Table Rock Writers Workshop, Joseph Bethanti, Darnell Arnold. She's. Um, now she's living in Tennessee, but she'll be back in North Carolina. <laughs> um, right. Don Champ. Um, just. Yeah. Well, we can't have a, a, a sh- list. We can't have a show where we interview authors without getting little writing advice so this next question is what's the best writing advice you ever got it goes back to the question you asked about do I get bogged down in the sentences this so this was my freshman year of college and actually my teacher was Adrian Rich's little sister <laughs> and I asked her you know some I didn't come right out and say you know what do you think of my sentences but that was essentially what I was asking her and she said and this was a fiction class, but I knew what she meant. She said, just try to tell the truth. That's hard enough. If you do that, the rest will follow. Mm, good. And if you could tell young writers one true thing, Gary asked, what would that be about writing? Maybe, well, it's, maybe it's the truth, what you yeah, just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, 
Well, I mean, there's so much I would say to young writers because I spent, I've spent years teaching them, and I have a lot of things I want to tell them. But I'll say one other thing about that, which is don't be impatient. Early success is actually a really hard thing for a writer. So take your time, learn your craft, take, you know, when you finish college, take continuing ed classes. Mm -hmm. Don't, um, early success is really, really hard for most writers, as appealing as it seems. Because then they expect that next book in eight months, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and the writer expects it of themselves. I mean, I've seen so many um, people who had, you know, big early success freeze up. So it's it's really better to labor in obscurity for a long time. Some some people might say I don't mind a little early success. Yeah. I know till they have it, <laughs> till they have it. Okay. Um, how long did it take to write a book like this? Well, I never know how to answer that question because I am doing other things at the same time. I wrote the first story in this in this collect or this novel, the first chapter, ten years ago. But it didn't take me 10 full years to write the book. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it takes me about 10 years to get to know all my characters. But I'm, I'm really hopeful that my next book is only going to take a couple years. <laughs> okay. So I'm slow. I mean, I'm, you know. Well, that's all I right. try to practice what I preach about patience. One of, one of the quotes that's above my desk is uh, uh, from André Gide. And in English, it's um, talent is a long patience. We've got just a little bit of time here, Abigail, to do um, just to talk briefly about your first two books. Uh, you have one called Dogs and another called Lily. Yes. Right? Which came first? Lily came first. Okay. Lily did take 10 years because okay. I was really trying to figure out what I was doing. As give I, give us a sense of what Lily's about. So Lily is um, set uh, – um, News of Our Loved Ones goes back and forth between France and the United States. Lily is set wholly in France and is an, a fictional imagining of the life of one of my great aunts whom I really admired. And it's really her life story. It's, it's got both world wars. It's got her um, long, it's got her difficult marriage, her um, long love affair with a woman. Um, it's got a lot of sex. But also has a lot about religion because yeah. she was... Um, devoutly religious as a young child and after the first world war became what i would call a devout atheist okay so you got it all in there so let's uh (laughs) let's read uh, a little bit of chapter one long ago lily believed in god she lay in the crook of her mother's arm in her mother's warm sweat smelling embrace a smell like hay like overripe peaches and that was god Her mother's arms were fat, browner than Lily's, and her gown was like silk. Lily warmed her hands on Maman's neck, curled her knees in the fabric of her gown. If she was careful and quick, she could slip her hand inside and touch Maman's breast before Maman caught her wrist and scolded her. Shh, Lily, ça suffit. Go to sleep now, little cabbage. Go to sleep. But outside it was bright. Pale threads of light slipped through the cracks in the shutters, the heavy brown curtains which did not close all the way. She could hear the birds in her father's garden, the older children in the street on the other side of the house. When she grew up, she would be a nun. 
and when she died, she would go straight to God. But it was important to learn all the words to all the prayers, to forget none. Hail Mary, hush, Lily. Hail, that's enough, Lily. You'll have to nap in your own bed. She lay perfectly still. She did not even breathe. After her nap, there would be goûter, chocolate, and bread. The fruit of thy womb was a ripe red pear. So Lily is uh, a little precocious. <laughs> very, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. She She's very smart. <laughs> uh, let's talk about dogs. Uh, the other book, and uh, what a title. Is, is it about dogs? No. Not about dogs. Dogs are a metaphor in this book. <laughs> okay, for? Um, girls being called dogs hmm. and um, people being faithful to the wrong thing, loyal to the wrong thing, the way a dog can be to a bad master. Um, this is a very, very different kind of book from either of my other books. It's a really gritty book. Um, the, the premise of it is that uh, a woman in her 40s whose father has just died um, knows that her father once raped a 14-year-old girl. And, um, and she is looking back at her own life and her own relationship with her father and what it means that she couldn't help loving a man who she knew had done this terrible thing. This is, this is my, my father did not rape anybody. <laughs> but th- her life story is, is a little bit of a, what if just a few things in my life had been different? I think I would have ended up like this character. You call this your bad girl novel? My bad girl novel. Okay. Set in Austin, Texas? Yeah. So um, where I lived for one very unhappy year. (laughs) Okay. And you're going to read, the er, again, the early part of Chapter 1. Yeah. I was born in 1959 in Austin, Texas, the fifth child of the Honorable Judge Henry Moore and of his French wife, Janine. My parents met in Normandy in the middle of June 1944. My mother's family had been killed in the D-Day bombings, and she was squatting on a pile of rubble, a thin girl with auburn hair trying to dislodge a stone from the mound, trying, as she had been for days, to unearth the remains of her family. My father saw her, the sun lighting her hair, the edge of her dress, and it was the prettiest thing he'd ever seen. Those were the words he always used, the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. As if, after ten days of solid fighting, of the choking terror and the stench and the noise, she had been perched there, above the ruins of her own house, as his reward. I don't know if he helped her dig through the rubble or if he took her right then, as she bent over in the sunshine. He always ended the story with those words, the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. He had two ways of talking the Harvard, and the Texan, and he always used the Texan when he spoke of my mother. It wasn't an accent, just locutions. The prettiest thing, I'll be damned. <laughs> okay, and that that uh, scene of the man finding the woman in France mm-hmm. has entered several of your writings. Right, right. Yeah, right. And again, be. this is that, that mm. you know, my parents were both physicists. They met in the United States. That, that's not nearly, truly, as, not nearly as dramatic. No, yeah. and truly, I mean, you never know about people's lives. Maybe my mother had an affair, but I, I would really swear that my father never raped anybody. Right, right. Um, so that's, uh, 
it's a little bit of a, you know, if, if, as I said, if certain things had been different in my life and if my father had been a different kind of person, um, this is the path I think I would have taken or might have taken. Okay. Well, are you working on something else now? I am. Yeah. I am. I am working on a new novel um, that basically takes the story of Shorn as its departure point. Oh. Um, but in that in that version of it, um, the character in Shorn actually has a daughter who who witnesses her getting her head shaved, and it's it's her story, and that daughter will end up in the states. You know, so somehow there's there's always the sort of Franco-American. You're, you're always getting yeah. pulled back yeah. to France, always. right? Always, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, Abigail, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Where can people find your book? So um, News of Our Loved Ones, since it's newly released, is available in most bookstores, and I really urge people to shop at their local independent bookstore. Um, all of them are available on Amazon. Well, we want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This was such a treat. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet Greg Gerald, pastor, community activist, saxophonist, and author of A Riff of Love, a melodic true story of his life in Enderley Park, a Charlotte community misunderstood and often ignored by the movers and shakers in the Queen City. It's not a book to be taken lightly, nor one that a white person can read without becoming a bit uncomfortable at times. And Greg pushes us in a good way to see race and poverty in ways that we weren't taught. And he invites every one of us to walk the streets of his neighborhood with new eyes. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>